This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Erie Krieger. Our conversation today is with Tom Jimerson, a gallerist and co-owner of Cardwell Jimerson Contemporary Art in Culver City, in partnership with Damon Cardwell. And our conversation today is about this wonderful exhibition that he has, San Diego and the Origins of Conceptual Art in California. Thank you so much for coming. It's a pleasure. Um, the show, this is a commercial gallery, so we're trying to do something uh, that actually captures the historical moment, which is pretty difficult in 1,200 square feet. Um, but be that as it may, um, we assembled all of the people who we thought were doing work within this ambit, conceptual art, um, in San Diego in this period between 1966 and 1978. Um, the kind of underlying narrative to the show is that there were three separate cohorts of artists in San Diego. Um, the first, prior to even to the arrival of UC San Diego in 1967, the first was really centered around San Diego State College. That's where John Baldessari went as an undergraduate. I think he went briefly to Berkeley um, as a graduate student, but he came back to San Diego and finished his graduate degree in the mid-1960s um, at San Diego State. But at the time, he graduated with a couple of other guys who were not terribly well known at all. One is Russell Baldwin, um, a graduate of the same class as Baldessari, and another is George Nicolaitis. And so these three, perhaps others, but certainly these three, were working in San Diego in the late 1960s, uh, early 1970s, um, in this in this genre that came to be called conceptual art. Baldessari is, of course, almost exclusively um, uh, credited with being the originator, um, at least as far as Southern California and San Diego is concerned, and that may very well be true, but uh, I think Baldwin and Nicolaitis need to at least be noted as part of that same group. Um, they were operating in the late 60s, as I say, before UC San Diego arrived, and at that time, La Jolla Museum of Art, not even contemporary art, but the La Jolla Museum of Art, was really the only place that they could aspire to show. And then, in terms of their survival... Why was that? Was there a curator there? Who, um, it was the only adventurous... I mean, I guess the answer would be yes, but it was the only... I'm not sure who we're talking about, but um, it was the only um, establishment... There was no commercial gallery that was show, showing contemporary art in San Diego. And um, so it was the La Jolla Museum and maybe occasionally um, the uh, colleges, particularly the junior college galleries. And in terms of survival, these guys were all teaching at various junior colleges. Um, Southwestern College was one of them, which is in downtown San Diego. Another place was Palomar College, which, which was in North San Diego County. And that's where um, Baldwin taught for, boy, 30 years. Um, but Baldessari was teaching at Southwestern, as was George Nicolaitis, and they collaborated on some of the very first pieces of conceptual art that were made in California. One piece was titled California, which spelled out the letters, uh, C-A-L-I, um, and so forth, and placed them um, in the landscape at the point that they would appear on the map. So it was a road trip that George Nicolaitis and John Baldessari took together. Um, up and down the state. 
um, fabricating these pieces, um, fabricating these letters, setting them in the landscape, and taking photographs of them. So that was a collaborative work. Um, something we have on view in the gallery is called um, Boundary, and it's part of something called the Boundary Project. And Baldessari and Nicolaitis together had fabricated a number of um, adhesive stickers that just say the word boundary on them, um, on a kind of an, a reflective aluminum foil. And these would be stuck around the perimeter of what was taken to be you know, the African-American ghetto in San Diego. And then it was later documented and uh, became what was called the boundary piece, and that's in the exhibition. So I guess the point I would make to start with is there was um, a fully functioning eco ecosystem of some sort um, in San Diego prior to the arrival of UC San Diego, but certainly in 1967 when they accepted their first class, it changed everything. Uh, and were the, these fellows from uh, San Diego originally? or did, they Yeah, they, they were mostly San Diego people. Certainly Baldessari was associated with a place called National City. His father was a owner of real estate, a real estate, kind of a real estate developer in National City. And some of the famous National City paintings that Baldessari did which were oftentimes um, photos taken from a moving car, printed on a photo emulsion canvas. They were often storefronts that were owned by the family. Um, so there's a certain kind of parallel to what Ed Ruscher was doing in Los Angeles. Um, but these kind of operated at the larger painting format. It would have the street address um, painted by a sign painter beneath them, typically. And what about Nicolaitis? Well, Nicolaitis... Um, um, Baldwin is dead now. He's passed away. Um, and George Nicolaitis is quite alive. But he quit making art around 1975. And, uh, was he originally from San Diego? We think he's a San Diego artist as well. Yeah. Have you been in touch with him? Yes. Yeah. And um, we're trying to uh, get our hands on some of that work from the 60s and 70s that's never been seen. And uh, that would be part of a future show. We were unable to get more than just the one piece we had here in time for this exhibition. But it's certainly our intention to try to uh, bring um, um, focus back to Nicolaitis because it's kind of forgotten that he was um, the collaborator with Baldessari in, these, in some of these earlier works. And indeed, as they're published these days, um, even while they were initially published as a Baldessari-Nicolaitis collaboration, uh, more recently they've tended only to be credited to Baldessari. And so, uh, you know, all the more reason to, uh, to um, return to that work of Nicolaitis and uh, give it some scrutiny. So that will be forthcoming. And what had brought you to this subject? Well, when I arrived in Southern California, I was, my parents came from, um, from Europe. We were a military family, actually North Africa. And um, they were, we were stationed in San Diego. So after I graduated from high school, my first year of college was at Palomar Junior College, which was about 20 minutes north of San Diego. So I would go down to UC San Diego. I was anticipating transferring there to complete, complete my degree. Instead, I went to UC Irvine, north of uh, San Diego. But I was familiar, say in 1970, 71, 72, I was familiar with what was happening down there. And so I already had, you know, um, uh, an awareness of Baldessari's early work. Um, Russell Baldwin ran the art gallery at Palomar Junior College and had a uh, Baldessari word painting exhibition 
1971, which is a really early date. So I was exposed to what was going on in San Diego then. And um, it was the memory of that that's motivated the show. And did you know these artists personally at the time? Uh, some of them. Um, I met uh, Alan Sakula then. He was an undergraduate, I think, when I met him in 1972. Um, I was introduced to Baldessari when um, you know he was showing his word paintings. Um, and I think that was right before he left San Diego and moved to CalArts to be one of the founding faculty members there. But many of these people I knew only by reputation. And did these other artists, Nicolaitis and Baldwin, continue to teach, or was it only Baldessari who, who went, became? Well, Baldessari was pulled out of junior college um, by uh, Paul Brock, who was the founding chairman of UC San Diego. So he was given a job at UC San Diego. In fact, he was probably the only Californian there because they recruited heavily out of New York and the East Coast. So they brought Alan Caprow and uh, David Anton, uh, Helen Newton Harrison, who had recently graduated from Yale, um, Manny Farber, you know, who was a film critic and painter. Um, so it was a very East Coast-oriented faculty. And I think, well, both because of Baldessari's uh, talent as both an artist and a teacher, but also... Um, the necessity of having at least somebody from the area teaching it at UC San Diego. Those two things conspired to um, separate him from the rest of the people who were still pretty much stuck in the junior college system. And uh, Baldessari's career, of course, has only gone, you know, stratospheric since then. But that was the first upward movement was um, being hired away from Southwestern and getting a job at UC San Diego. And why do you think these artists like Alan Capro and all of these people uh, at the Antons were attracted to San Diego? Did they, was, was there nothing similar going on in the, in the East Coast that they felt well, comfortable about? Or? Eleanor Anton has an answer for that. She goes, you know, it was very tough living as a bohemian in New York. And she remembered um, the founding of UC San Diego as... Uh, two scientists standing under a palm tree handing out checks. And um, that was, and the checks mattered. Yes. So um, it was really a mercenary decision. That, and um, there was a certain physical beauty to La Jolla that you know, was, I think, they all found quite shocking. But I think it's, it's surprising to many people who think that you had to go to New York to make a mm -hmm. career, and yet these people were choosing to go to San Diego to do the, to make it. In, in some ways, their careers had already been established, though. Caprow was Caprow. Yes. And um, David Anton, not so much. He was a published poet and a published art critic, so there was a little bit more of a chance that he was taking by relocating to, to San Diego. Likewise, Eleanor Anton, um, she stayed uh, in New York and commuted for the first few years um, that they were working in San Diego. Um, and likewise, uh, someone like Manny Farber. I think his career had been established. His name had been established. Um, it was not He was not going to... Principally as a film critic, um, he was known. And I don't think he was going to suffer um, at all by relocating to San Diego. Um, it, it seemed, I think, for all of these guys, a, a fairly smart move. Um, and certainly it changed the whole... Um, cultural climate in San Diego 
because these people already had major careers. Um, and um, so San Diego would sort of never be the same. Um, once UC San Diego had you know, established itself there. But let's talk a little bit about some of the other people. Again, the Antons. Um, what kind of work were they doing in, once they arrived in San Diego? Well, Eleanor was not given initially a teaching job at UC San Diego. And um, it, it took a lot of effort on her part to, be get, to get a job there. And, uh, but she was working very, uh, uh, very diligently as an artist. And uh, one of the things she did was she found a local photographer named Phil Steinmetz, um, who had a photo studio. He had been trained pretty much in the Ansel Adams Weston School of Photography. And uh, so he really knew how to make a photograph and make a really compelling print off the photograph. And so he was hired by Eleanor to um, take the photographs that, that ultimately um, became her, shoot, her Boots project, the 100 Boots project. All of those were photos by Phil Steinmetz. Um, and what was the Boots project? She would set 100 Boots in various locations. Um, as an outsider, of course, San Diego looked exotic to her. So that it would be the beach one day, oil wells the next, um, the San Diego fairground the next day after that, and it would be always the same, 100 boots arrayed, um, almost as sort of a stand-in for people who were not present. And uh, so they were somewhat enigmatic. These were photographed, turned into postcards, and then the postcards were mailed to all of her friends, um, people in the art world. It was an effort to establish some... Um, high profile for her um, that she couldn't get otherwise being in San Diego. So these things would travel to Europe by mail, to New York, to Los Angeles. And uh, some people have really nice sets of com complete sets as a consequence. Um, was this a similar time when Paul's um, Berman was doing the sort of mail art? A little after. It was more contemporaneous with Ankuara's work. So Ankuara would send out postcards oftentimes to art critics or collectors um, one series was I Am Still Alive, and that would be stamped on the back of a postcard. Another series was I Got Up, and it would have the, the time of the morning that he woke up. Um, and that would just be a commercial postcard on one end and uh, stamped information on the other. So this was, you know, there, was more than, there were more than one artist um, involved in this postcard as art. But certainly, uh, Berman and the Beat-era people had, had done it a few years earlier. And were any of these pieces shown in galleries in Los Angeles at the time? I'm not aware of them being shown at the time, because they had more of the quality of ephemera to them. I think I'd heard that a complete set that had been stamped and addressed had sold for over $100,000. So, and of course, they were handed out for nothing. They were gifts. And that's also one of the kind of uh, subversive and intriguing qualities of the Boots series. And it fits our time as well. Do you see a connection between the time and now where there's perhaps been a change in the economy and um, people are... You can't beat free. Yeah, free, free is back. Yeah. But then the other group, besides the Antons, the Harrisons, of course, Helen and Newton Harrison um, and Capra, the other group that constitutes the exhibition um, is really uh, Alan Sekula, 
Martha Rosler, Feldstein Metz, and Fred Lonadier. And these were, um, they came in a couple of different waves, but these were the first really important graduate students who had come to study at UC San Diego. And for them, conceptual art was probably already then a genre that they could operate in, that they were not necessarily establishing themselves. They were not, this is not like Wiener, Hubler, Barry, Kosuth, but they kind of understood the photo text as a genre that was accessible to anyone who wanted to work there. It was still, you know, um, unconventional, but um, it was entirely imaginable. So uh, thus we get a third cohort of people, and uh, maybe they're distinguished a little bit from the other two by having a, a more militantly political set of, um, of ambitions. And who do you think is the most important in that group? Well, the careers um, have favored uh, uh, Martha Rosler and Alan Sakula. Part of the argument that we're making, and I think Martha and um, Alan are, are in agreement, is that Fred Lonadier and uh, Fel Steinmetz, even though they're, they're kind of laboring in obscurity, were every bit as important um, in the 1970s. And that's certainly one of the underlying motivations of putting the exhibition together. And why do you think they haven't gotten the attention that they, the others have gotten? Um, well, they stayed in San Diego to begin with. Um, uh, Martha Rosler and Alan Sakula both moved to New York in the late 70s. Um, and then Alan came back to the West Coast to teach at CalArts and other, other locales. Um, but they're, they've, they've aimed their careers at an international audience. And they've done that quite you know, us, um, consciously. And Fred Lonadier and Fel Steinmetz have stayed in San Diego. They're still teaching at UC San Diego, both teaching photography. And in the case of Fred, um, even though some works like the, uh, the piece uh, Health and Safety Game was shown, included in one of the, uh, one of the Whitney Biennials, um, probably by the end of the 70s, Fred was choosing to exhibit the work more often than not in union halls and in um, uh, political locales, political and social locales. So he began to see his project as being more... Um, one of an activist, and less one uh, of being a fine artist. And um, that certainly can't help a, an art career. Um, and this exhibition and other things are, that we're working on are trying to correct that a bit. And tell us some, a little bit about some of these political events that they did. Well, it was, you know, they began graduate school. Well, Fred, to begin with, had spent the years before UC San Diego um, as a, a, a draft evader. So he was, he was in, involved in um, a long-running fight with the, uh, with the draft board. And I think he was doing this mostly out of um, Seattle. Um, was, and when he got that behind him, he uh, began graduate school at UC San Diego. So he already had a kind of political, a strong political background as a, um, as a draft resistor. Uh, when he began graduate school. And that um, sense of engaged politics continued right on through. Um, I can't speak to the origins of Alan Sakula's um, um, political engagement, except to say right from the very beginning, his work was uh, involved in anti-war, anti-Vietnam War protest. 
and, uh, and a kind of general critique of capitalism that um, has kind of characterized his work ever since. Uh, Martha Rosler's work um, also, I think that was a critique of capitalism, but also with a, uh, a kind of proto-feminist engagement in it as well. And the, were there actual works of art that contained the subject matter? Yeah, almost inevitably, meaning almost all of the work had, um, had a very, very strong um, political valence to it. Uh, Martha Rosler's um, ex- piece in the show is, is titled North American Waitress from the Know Your Servant series. So um, it's a meditation of sorts on the status of the waitress in society. Um, and in that sense, it's you know perfectly uh, um, coextensive with uh, Alan Sakula's videotape, which is of he and a fellow pizza chef. Um, it's called Performance Under Working Conditions. And it's uh, a kind of critique of um, low-wage labor. So what do you think are the, the pieces in the show that sort of document seminal moments in this history? We were happy to let the artists choose a lot of the work in the show, which is not ordinarily how we do it. Um, usually we will take a, a very um, almost dictatorial view toward what we want to show and try to manipulate them into letting us show it. Um, in this case, uh, the artists were all giving us early examples of their work and they had a very clear sense of how they wanted that early period to be seen. Um, and so I think from their point of view, they would call all of this work seminal because they, they, were, you know, they were instrumental in choosing it um, for us. Uh, so the pieces that I tend to get most excited about are, are the ones that are just less well-known. And that would be like Fred Lonadier's piece, a uh, very, very large-scale piece, um, The Double Articulation of Disneyland from 1974. That uh, occupies one large wall of the gallery. And it is a photo and text-based piece of Fred taking pictures of himself, uh, Martha Rossler, Alan Sakula, and another student spending a day in Disneyland. And then beneath each one of those photo text pieces is a whole other piece of text, which is an English translation of a, an essay on Disneyland as a utopia by uh, the French theorist Louis Morin. And as it turned out, they were all in a Louis Morin seminar in UC San Diego um, at the time. So this is the, undoubtedly a... Uh, a project related to that. So what are the upcoming shows that you're, t- that you're planning to do on this subject matter? Well, this is the first thing that we've ever done on conceptual art, and um, it's what it shares in common with the things that we've been doing up to this point is that it represents a relatively little-known, relatively undervalued moment in contemporary culture. And we've been focusing on that as a kind of uh, leitmotif that runs through all the, all the exhibitions. So the show previous to this was 1960s-era Hardage painter, paintings by a little-known, uh, but in, we think important, California Hardage painter John Barber. Well, there's no formal resemblance between the Barber paintings on the one hand and the photo text conceptual pieces in the current show. The uh, commonality 
is that we're really intrigued about things that have not gotten the attention that we're convinced they deserve and um, that require a little bit of historical detective work on our part. Um, and so we're going to keep doing that. So there will be some, you know, some periodic, periodic changes of formal attitude from one show to the next. However, um, the, the project of reconsidering conceptual art is something that I think is going on now in a number of different institutions, including museums. So we will keep coming back to this. One show that I've just began, begun working on will be titled... Uh, feminism and conceptual art in California. And it would just be women who were embarking on bodies of work that involved or that engaged with the uh, then-emerging feminist movement, but did it in the, in the uh, genre of conceptual art. And since the two... You make Woman House and things yeah. like that? But those works that were more likely to be videotaped or photo-based out of that. So it's just that the emergence of conceptual art in the 60s and early 70s and the emergence of feminism were co-temporal, you know. And how would that be different than, for example, your approach and the approach of uh, Cornelia Butler and that wax show at Milka? Well, it would, it would tend to focus on a genre as opposed to the whole, meaning the genre being conceptual art, which would be pretty much limited to... Um, photo and text pieces, and also videotapes. And which artists, for example? Well, we don't know. You know, there, I think there are, um, obviously, the artists that are in, in this show would include Eleanor Ant and, and Martha Rosler. But there are some somewhat lesser-known artists, uh, Susan Mogul and um, uh, Eileen, Eileen Siegelov. And, you know, I, I don't... In, in Northern California, there's Lynn Hirschman. Um... I haven't really kind of plumbed what, you know, everything this would involve, but I have a suspicion it would be a fairly large number of people. Yeah. And if you, I can... Yeah. I haven't even given... Yeah, exactly. I have not even given it the thought that, you know, that um, that we, we'll get around to doing. How fascinating. Well, in summing it up, um, is there anything else about this exhibition that you really would like your audience to come away with? Um, there's there are certain peculiarities about locale that I don't think are oftentimes appreciated. We kind of think of art as certainly I do um, in um, non-geographic terms and temporal terms, but non-geographic terms. And um, I think the San Diego-ness of the show is something that um, has almost surprised me as being an important uh, feature to it. And um, by that I mean San Diego. So why do you think San Diego? Do you think it's a borderline of Mexico? Or is that a well, that's, of, that's certainly about? what's important to it right now. At the time, I think it was that um, the San Diego people had a rather profound sense of their own uh, remoteness, of their own provincialism. On the other hand, there were planes flying back and forth between New York and San Diego and Europe and San Diego all the time. So... Um, the place was was both cosmopolitan and provincial at the same time. And in that sense, it might have been similar to Vancouver in the same period, so that both in Vancouver and in San Diego, you get a kind of focused group of artists who are working in very, very sophisticated ways that you don't associate with the provinces, typically. 
and yet they have a sense of themselves as being remote, um, off the map, you know, underappreciated, underobserved. And what that does is it is, and certainly I can attest to that in regards to San Diego, is it creates a sense of camaraderie where they can't, they feel like you can't afford to have rivals or enemies. They're just too few people and, and no one's paying attention anyway. So um, I wouldn't try something like this, um, say, in an art capital like Los Angeles or New York, um, because I think you'd find um, more rivalries than we did here. This was a case where everyone uh, felt really indebted to everyone else. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be unique to certain kinds of locales. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been wonderful. My pleasure entirely. Thank you. Thank you.